0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Organic Stream Talk Show. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and this is episode 2 of our special edition on multi story buildings. Multi story buildings are often considered the final frontier of organics recycling, and it's easy to see why. Densely populated with little space, there are a number of challenges to tackle when setting up a program. In episode one, we explored some of these challenges and the factors that will impact your program. Today, we continue in this vein and go through the remaining factors to take into account before delving into best practices and solutions from cities around the world in our case study episode. So let's get started.
1: We really make an effort to reach a diversity of folks
2: That then clicked in their heads of why it was important for them to separate their food scraps.
1: They just thought, I'll just pay my monthly subscription and I'm not going to deal with the
2: program.
3: It's a challenge, 8 million people who are all very different. (laughs) And so it's always a challenge to try and reach everybody.
0: As I said in the first episode, successful organics recycling is all about building relationships. Once you have established a relationship with the building manager or owner, the focus is going to be on getting the tenants on board and participating. And this is not always easy. Introducing an organics recycling programme anywhere requires a commitment of time and resources into education, face-to-face engagement, tailoring your outreach strategies to specific demographics, and sustaining relationships. In general, engagement strategies will consist of targeted outreach efforts well in advance of programme rollout. Then, after rollout, the focus is on increasing participation with continuous on-site education, gathering feedback, reworking flyers and messaging, and so on. With multi-story buildings, there are a few extra challenges you can face in terms of tenant engagement. Firstly, the turnover of tenants, which can be quite high depending on the property, will mean you will need to ensure that every new person moving into the building is educated and aware of the program. This is often taken on by building managers. As well as the transient nature of the populations, there is sometimes a lack of community feeling in a multi-storey building, which can lead to a lack of interest in attending building meetings, for example, or just a lack of interest in how well the building is performing. As I said many times in the first episode, every building is different, and your outreach strategies will have to be tailored to meet the building's unique challenges, which includes getting tenants invested in the programme we won't be delving too deep into the engagement and education strategies here because we're focusing heavily on this in our upcoming case study episode but it's important to get an overview of the kind of work it involves and for this i want to take us back to new york Uh, I'm Jessica Schreiber. Last episode, we heard from Jessica Schreiber of the DSNY about their Voluntary Organics Recycling Pilot Programme. When we spoke about getting tenants involved and engaged, Jessica summed up the basic strategy they employ.
3: Always, whenever you're working with the public, you should know your audience. So we do do a lot of work with community boards because they're a good window into what's important in that community, how they're accessing information, and so sometimes we'll start at the community board level and and then work down. And we do try to have a whole range of ways for people to become engaged. So we always have flyers and paper brochures. We always have the website. Like we've launched social media. So we have a Facebook, a Twitter, an Instagram, hopefully to to sort of reach everybody. And then, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Eight million people who are all very different. And so it's
0: always a challenge to try and reach everybody. So as you can hear, New York, like many other cities I've talked to, are using a lot of different avenues to reach the tenants, including flyers, websites and social media. But key to every strategy, it seems, is face-to-face communication. And this brings me back to an episode we did last year with Director of the Recycling Unit of the DSNY's Bureau of Waste Prevention, Bridget Anderson. At the time, I quizzed Bridget about their outreach campaigns, and she stressed the importance of taking a hands-on approach.
4: Once you are a, a pilot area where you're actually receiving the programme itself, that on-the-ground outreach has been re- extremely useful. Not everybody reads the mailers. Not, you know, not everyone, you, you receive a mailing from the city it might end up directly in your recycling bin. Hopefully, your recycling bin. <laughs> um, and uh, and so really having people out there on the ground during the bin deliveries to really make sure people understand the program. During those periods, we've encountered people who are just so excited about the program, and we've encountered people who said, you know what, I, this really isn't for me. You know. And so what we do is we really try and change hearts and minds. We try and having people on the ground has been critical to that face-to-face conversation has been critical to
0: getting people to even try the program. Now, this is primarily focused on engaging tenants at the beginning. But what about keeping up the level of commitment after the programme rollout? Hello. Hi Enzo. Hi. Hi, finally. <laughs>
5: yeah, how's the quality of the voice?
0: It's much better. I put this question to Enzo Favoino when I contacted him a couple of weeks ago looking for insights into Milan's multi-story strategies. Enzo is a researcher and advisor at the Scuola Agraria del Parco di Monza in Italy and the scientific coordinator of Zero Waste Europe. And we'll be hearing more from him on Milan's success in the next episode. But I wanted to include his answer to my question here, because what he had to say was very interesting.
5: One thing I would like to stress is that it may seem a paradox, but normally we tend to have the best results the very first week we start the system both from the quantitative angle and the qualitative angle. You know, it's uh, what we call the shocking effect. We literally flood them with information, awareness campaigns. So the very first week, we have got always the best results, which goes against the so-called received wisdom, because normally they tell us, no, it will take ages to have people educated. No, they behave right away then we have to keep the good level of results because if you don't provide the feedback to people, telling them the way it is working, what are the critical issues, how to improve, and so on and so forth, then there will be some you know, uh, relaxation from the commitments because maybe they, they think uh, there's not so much focus from the local authority on the system. So why spending time and care about that. But if they get targeted every so often with messages, hey, you're doing well, we have saved such an amount of money, and so on and so forth, this helps keeping the good levels, both from uh, the quantitative and the qualitative angle.
0: This is an important point that Enzo brings up. Without consistent communication right from the beginning, it may seem to tenants that the programme is not much of a priority to the city, And then people themselves might start putting it lower on their priority list as well. Populations in high-density urban areas are extremely diverse. People from different countries, backgrounds, family situations, cultures and life experience all make the city their home and multi-storey residential buildings encapsulate this aspect of city life quite well. Reaching out to tenants will require an understanding of the demographics in each building that you work with. And from speaking to many programme managers, it seems that the demographics that gain the most focus are language and ethnicity, and, to a certain extent, age as well.
2: We're here today in Los Angeles, California, downtown region off of 400 South Main Street.
0: At a busy cafe just outside the Old Bank District building in sunny Los Angeles, we spent time with Jason Sanders, National Zero Waste Manager for EcoSafe Zero Waste, who helped implement the Organics Recycling Pilot Program in the building, an eight-floor multi-story building with all but the first floor being residential.
2: So this, uh, there's 70 total units at this building, and each floor has a refuse room that has a compost bin inside and then a chute for their landfill and recyclables as well.
0: We spent the afternoon speaking to both him and Jessica Aldridge of Waste Hauler Athens Services about their experiences in working together in rolling out and tracking the performance of their organics collection pilot program in L.A., we also discussed the challenges they faced along the way, and here Jason shares with us their experiences in tailoring their program to different demographics.
2: So um, one of the challenges is that we've seen with setting up these multifamily food scrap programs is um, adopting the program to meet the specific building's demographic needs. We have language barriers. And so we have to always adopt our uh, education outreach materials to work within that particular language, whether that's Mandarin or Spanish or English. And we have found that um, certain demographics, uh, such as a uh, you know more of a progressive, uh, environmentally focused uh, age group from your millennials, Generation X, really adopt these programs more rapidly than uh, some of your older demographics, um, so it's, it's always a challenge trying to adapt the program to meet the specific building's demographics. Um, here at this old Baint District building, we uh, actually have a very progressive demographic that easily adopted uh, the program, so we have demographics that really understand the full cycle of the organics here, where others might not have that knowledge base.
0: Understanding the full cycle of organics. This is something I want to focus on for a moment because it proves just how important it is to highlight the connection between the organics we throw in the bin, soil health, and the food we produce. Jason suggests that it is younger, more progressive demographics that have a ready understanding of this cycle, which makes implementing a program much easier. And showing tenants the connection between our food waste and the soil can be a great strategy for education or promotion of the program.
2: We brought some of the finished compost that this material turns into and we showed the residents the finished compost. So we educated them on what their food scraps turns into which I believe was a really key component because a lot of our people that live in cities don't quite understand that their food scraps actually turns into good-looking soil amendment. Um, And so that then clicked in their heads of why it was important for them to separate their food scraps.
0: Environmentally aware tenants can be a great asset for a program. Even though this can be often a small demographic within a building, it only takes a few to make a difference When I asked Jessica Schreiber how many people were environmentally aware in the buildings she worked with, this is what she told me.
3: From the tenant meetings that I've attended, I would say there's maybe 10 to 20 percent who will ask questions like that. And the other 80 to 90 percent are much more concerned about, well, is this convenient? Do I have to do it? And is it going to smell or bring rodents? So there's sort of that small group that, yeah, is very interested in where this goes and why we're doing it and if it stays local and how it's composted. And so I think because those people exist and ask those questions, it's a greater educational moment for the whole building because everyone has those sort of logistic questions, those convenience questions. And then it's that one step further, the why question, that I think is where it really becomes internalized.
0: But what about the main demographics to factor in your program? How do cities work with the different languages and ethnicities to reach everyone equally?
1: Will you be doing a little editing on this before it uh, runs? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so I don't have to be perfect with everything. No, you don't.
0: <laughs> a few weeks back, I contacted Marsha Rutan to speak about the very recent mandatory composting program in Seattle, USA. And her work with education and outreach in multi story residential buildings there.
1: My name is Marsha Rutan and I work for Seattle Public Utilities in Seattle, Washington. And I work on uh, multifamily food waste and recycling programs. My official title is Community Recycling Program Manager. And I've been here eight years this June.
0: Now, Seattle has a diverse population of 660,000 people and over 5,000 apartment buildings. And Marcia shared with me some of their valuable experiences in working with the various demographics in the city.
1: Yeah, so we provide these two basic flyers for this program. Where does it go? And the food waste flyer in 18 different languages. Now, these have all been translated, but the next step that we're learning more about in the last year or so is something called transcreation, and that is something where the materials are actually made culturally relevant, as well as the wording is ensured to be correctly translated, so it doesn't mean something odd in the other language, so that will be the next step, going through these different languages and making them as pertinent, relevant as possible to the folks who are using them. Um, also, when I go out and do presentations, I always ask if there are other you know, people speaking other languages who will be there, and we just always bring interpreters if needed. We are also expanding our engagement of community liaisons, either through community-based organizations or individuals who are good educators, you know, people who look like the people in that particular community. And so we also engage that way.
0: And do you focus on reaching out to any other demographics? Uh, I've heard age mentioned as well as an important demographic, for example. Sure. Um
1: Yes, we do have some focus on that, though I would say not as much as on the ethnic diversity. Now, for instance, I am an older person at this point, and I go out to a lot of the senior properties, and uh, they really like that because I'm closer to them in age, and they can relate to me, and I can relate, you know, I can say I'm going to be retiring soon, and I know you're on a limited budget, but... You know, still we want to consider buying recycled content products because that's what keeps recycling going. So that sort of thing, they can relate to me. So I cover the older group in a lot of ways. And we also go to a lot of different festivals and fairs and table at those. And so we really make an effort to reach a diversity of folks through those festivals, whether it's, for instance, the University District Street Fair was just this last weekend, which was very much focused on younger people. So that's another aspect. We do have Twitter. We do have Facebook. And that's not just for the younger people. Uh, We know that a lot of people of ethnic diversity are on their smartphones. But that's a a primary computer for them. So it's just a great way to reach a lot of folks.
0: So as you can hear, there are a lot of different ways to reach out and a lot to factor in. Again, you have to be prepared to invest a substantial amount of time and resources into outreach if you are to be successful. And it's a long-term thing as well. Engaging tenants is a never-ending process. And having someone from within a specific community on your outreach team can be especially important for connecting to that community. Now before we continue with the show, I'd like to thank Ecovio from BASF for making this episode possible. Ecovio is a high-quality and versatile bioplastic made by BASF, certified compostable and containing bio-based content. The main areas of use are plastic films, dual-use bags or agricultural films. Compostable packaging solutions such as paper coating and injection molding products can also be produced with EcoVio. For more information, visit their website by clicking on the link in the description on our podcast page. And now, back to the show. Throughout this special edition, we've been discussing both mandatory and voluntary programs and we touched on a few of the differences between them in episode one, particularly in relation to getting building managers on board. The nature of your programme will have an impact on the people you're trying to engage and on your approach, as we've seen. With voluntary programmes, it's all about winning people's hearts and minds, as there is no mandate to put the fire under people's feet. While this may mean you have less buildings participating, I learned from Jessica Schreiber in New York that working with interested buildings only has some unique benefits.
3: I think the benefit of voluntary is that we can work with buildings that we have relationships with, um, buildings who are eager and want to do this. And so we may get less material with the voluntary group um, because it's not mandated, but because they're very engaged and they are really supportive, that material we're hoping is cleaner than what we would see had we just said everybody needs to do this so we're sort of at this point hoping for more clean material very voluntary very feel-good program versus a mandatory where maybe we would get more tonnage but it might not be as high of quality
0: now jessica mentions the feel-good aspect of the program and this made me wonder just how important is the popularity of the program? And how much does its success depend on creating a positive experience for buildings and their tenants?
3: I think the popularity is a key part of it. Um, One is that we're able to show that there's interest. So we're hoping to add a fourth truck to Manhattan uh, this summer. And that's just based on the fact that we've had so many inquiries and we know that we should be able to create a full route just from the inquiries that we have. And so the popularity of the program is a huge part of it. And the other half of that is that we want to make sure that the service is consistent and that the education up front is good and that we really like take a special interest in these buildings so they feel supported. um, Because then that makes them more likely to tell the next building or their friend who's also a super. I have this program. It's easier than it looks. This is really simple. You should do it. So we're hoping that the city support on our end, the work that we're doing to like bring the buildings on board as part of it and then that the building sort of spread word and that popularity grows.
0: Mandatory programmes, in contrast, can be a lot more challenging, where the aim is to reach full compliance and at the same time keep the contamination rate as low as possible. This means increasing education and outreach efforts, dealing with difficult buildings and handing out fines, as we heard from Alexa Kielty in the last episode. This can be daunting, and it's generally considered best practice to work in steps, beginning as a voluntary program, for example, and transitioning to mandatory once the system is rolling and the kinks have all been ironed out. In Seattle, they took this step-by-step approach, first making it mandatory to provide organic waste carts in apartment buildings in 2011 before moving to the composting mandate that is in place from this year. Marcia Rutan explained to me how this was a very effective tactic.
1: Basically, there was a lot of work already that went to build a, you know, to build the foundation for this. And I can speak more, more to the multifamily than to the other sectors. But basically, in September of 2011, Seattle City Council made it mandatory that all multifamily properties would have food waste carts. So, I have, you know, there was somebody that I hired and who's worked with me for a number of years who was doing technical outreach, and I was handling more educational outreach and uh, phone troubleshooting. And uh, so, we got definitely a certain flood of inquiries about this. And so we were working very hard, starting really in 2009, to get all of the properties up and going with the food waste cards. And by December, I think it was about December of 2011, a few months after that law went into effect, we basically knew we were going to roll out cards to anybody who was left over out of the 5,000 who hadn't signed up. And in fact, there were only a few hundred left. So we really worked hard to get those subscription that subscription base established. Now, just because a property had a cart did not mean they were using it. And there were definitely instances where they stashed it in a closet, in a storeroom. They didn't want to deal with it. They just thought, I'll just pay my monthly subscription and I'm not going to deal with the program. So the next stage after getting the cart subscribed has been participation, and we have done a lot of work with on-site education with technical assistance, again, to build the participation. And we could tell who wasn't participating because we would get reports from the drivers, you know, which properties consistently didn't have carts out, where there were carts missing continually. We would get those reports and target those properties, especially the large ones, because, you know, there was more impact there. So, you know, we definitely had built up some level of participation. And then this next stage has really caught the attention of um, a number of properties who are very concerned about the fine and wanting to either get their service going or else improve it substantially so they don't get the fine.
0: So here you get a sense not only of the differences and challenges and benefits between the programmes, but how much time it can take to build up participation and prepare for mandatory organics collection. Since there are so many facets involved in setting up programmes in multi-storey buildings, this is no surprise. So it's best to keep in mind that no matter what the nature of the programme is, it's important to be patient and to keep a long-term perspective. We take another short break now to also thank EcoSafe Zero Waste for making this episode possible. When planning an organics recycling program for multi story buildings, not only do you need custom solutions to suit those specific buildings, you need to address the challenges residents face every day in separating their food scraps and dealing with odors and insect infestations. EcoSafe Zero Waste specializes in designing and implementing source separation programs for organics and recyclables. From kitchen caddies and zero waste stations, to compostable bags and dispenser systems, EcoSafe Zero Waste Solutions will help make your program a success. For more information, visit their website by clicking on the link in the description on our podcast page. And now, let's get back to the episode. come to the end of the episode now and there's one last topic I want to discuss at all stages of the organics recycling process the organic stream needs to be kept as clean as possible keeping contamination low is a constant battle and how the organics are transported from household bins to recycling containers and then to the collection trucks can have a great impact what we're talking about here is lining strategies With lining strategies, we're back in the same familiar situation of trying to balance tenant and building manager convenience with practicality for program managers. On one hand, tenants and building staff as well will be more comfortable using something like plastic bags for collecting food waste, and on the other, composting facilities want as clean a stream as possible, so ideally it would be best to have no bin lining whatsoever. So how can we balance these two sides? Well, first of all, there is a general lining hierarchy that many cities stick to, giving people a list of options for carrying their food waste from best to worst.
3: So we we kind of give people a lining hierarchy.
0: This is Jessica Schreiber once again.
3: And always our first choice is no lining, and you can just rinse the bin out. So no lining is always preferred. The second choice would be paper, so either lining it with a paper bag or newspaper, because that's going to break down with the food. Third choice would be compostable bags. And last choice, which we really don't want but are willing to accept, is clear plastic bags.
0: Now, in terms of having no bin lining at all, this can be a bit too much for both tenants and building managers alike. And it will also increase the yuck factor as they'll be faced with having to clean out bins regularly, something that Marcia Rutan pointed out to me. We did a test
1: project about 2007-2008 to test how would this work in multifamily, can it even work in multifamily? And one of the results of that project was that the property managers really want a liner in the cart, a compostable liner. And that was not quite a deal breaker, but close. Like, give us that liner or or else kind of feeling. So that's been one thing that has helped with the ick
0: factor. Now, Jessica mentioned that New York accepts, as a last resort, polyethylene plastic bags for those who would not participate otherwise. While this is not an ideal solution and contributes to higher contamination levels, it does highlight the fact that many people are so used to the practicality and cleanliness of using plastic, particularly for wet materials like organics, that they may shy away from participating without keeping that level of comfort. This is where compostable plastic bags can sometimes be of great benefit.
1: We have just done a test project with some compostable bag dispensers. And this is something that properties can hang up right near the compost cart. And then residents can pull out a little green uh, approved compostable bag, take it back up to their apartment home, use it and bring it back down and then just take another bag. And that also reduces odors, keeps the flies down. Just, you know, these bags. I was quite resistant to them at first because it just seemed like one more thing, You know, to have to buy and use and was not in line with my waste prevention ethic. But I have become, you know, quite sold on them for at least definitely certain situations. I think they definitely work. And where people can't afford, you know, these dispensers, I think it makes a lot of
0: sense. While they can be a great solution, there are some challenges to be aware of. Not all compostable bags are alike. Some composting facilities may not be able to give them the time they need to break down fully, and others may not accept compostable plastics at all. So finding a facility that will accept the bags being used will be essential. And New York has had extra challenges in terms of compostable plastic bags. Availability. Here's DSNY's Bridget Anderson from last year once again, sharing their experiences.
4: The availability of those compostable bags has been a problem. It's taken us a while to get the bags into retail stores. There are also online outlets for the bags. The price of the bags has been a problem. Some people you know, say it's, the bags are too expensive, I won't use them. Um, or I would participate in the program if I could use the bags, but the bags are too expensive. Our hope is that eventually the compostable bags will maybe become cheaper, will maybe be more available and then we can switch out
0: the regular plastic bags. So like all of the other topics we've talked about lining strategies will have a big impact on your program's success there are pros and cons to each of the possible solutions you can choose and availability, affordability convenience and contamination are key elements to pay attention to as well as giving people a range of options to suit their situation. And here we come to the end of episode two. We've covered a lot of ground here in the last two episodes. Hopefully it's helped you get a solid understanding of the main factors and challenges faced. And hopefully we've helped answer at least some of your questions too. But if not, never fear because we're only getting started. Stay tuned for the next episode where we invite more program managers and recycling specialists to discuss case studies and share the most successful strategies for all the issues we've addressed so far. So if you have any questions or comments, you can contact us on our website organicstream.org or on Twitter, our Twitter handle is the orgstream.